How are we all going? Good, good, good. It's good to be here on this morning and we get to, uh, you know, dig into God's word and stuff together. It's good that, you know, there's a few, as, as Tim said, like a bit of a refresher course on people that have come in the past and back again and some new faces. It's really fantastic. Um, I love this book and the way that we're going through it, um, like looking at the mega series and looking at uh, the, the people that God has chosen to tell his story through. That's one of the things that I find most encouraging and fascinating about the Bible. Um, because if you think about um, the people that God has chosen to use in the Bible, compare it to like, you know, um, like epic literature that like mankind, like man-made has written, like mankind has written. So, you know, mankind, like the epic literature, how do, like who are the people that sort of come between gods and men? They're always like mighty warriors, aren't they? They're sort of like sort of demigod titans. They're like beautiful heroines. They're like mighty and wise kings. They're like, they are the, the perfect people, these amazing people. They're so great. And it's really unachievable in a way, hey? And I love the Bible, how it, God, he just brings it down. He just uses these like everyday kind of people like the ewes and me's, you know, um, uses like broken adulterers and, you know, broken murderers. And man, he even uses like cowards that become brave, you know, weak men that become supermen. He even uses like left-handers. It's amazing. <laughs> That's okay. If you're a left-hander, you know, it's okay. My beautiful mom is a left-hander and she was, God, God yeah, and our eldest, he's a left-hander. And Al, oh, Alan's a left-hander. And Andrew's a left-hander. See, look at all you guys coming out of the closet. And JJ, all the creative types. But, you know, God uses all these people and gives me great encouragement that God can use a Ben McIntyre. He can use a Cat Duffy, you know. He can use a Sam Jolly. He can use whoever. Sorry to lump you guys with me, but unlucky. So anyway, open up your Bibles today into Genesis chapter 16 and 21. Um, jam your fingers or bookmarks or whatever in those two passages there where we're going to be mainly sitting today and looking through. Um, a few weeks ago, we looked at Abra- the, la- the issue of la- laughter in Abraham and Sarah's life, and that was a great thing to do. And I wish we could carry on that joyful subject again today, but we're going to look at the flip side of what was going on in House Abraham at this time. And it's, it's a bit of an underbelly, really. It's, it's dark, um, there's you know, jealousy and there's abuse. It's, it's, a, it's a bad place, what was going on concurrently. So uh, we're going to look at this through one of these broken, weak people that we talked about that God has you know, put in his word, like God cares for this person. God has chosen to have her story laid down in his word. So we're going to look at this person who probably bore the brunt of this dirty underbelly of House Abraham, okay? And this person's name is Hagar, and she's a slave girl. So who is this Hagar? Who's Hagar? Andrew, who's Hagar? (laughs) First we hear of Hagar popping up is in this Genesis 16. So let's read verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So right off the bat, we're told Sarah can't have kids. She can't bear heirs for Abraham, this guy who's meant to father nations. But instead, she's got this handmaid on the side, this Egyptian handmaid. Why? That's what an interesting sentence. Why would you allude to that? 
So we're not actually told how this Egyptian um, handmaid, this Egyptian slave, ends up as Sarah's handmaiden, but it's a pretty solid guess, actually, that, remember, um, Abraham and Sarah, they were fleeing the famine in Canaan, and they spent a good chunk of time in Egypt. And what happened when they were down there? All the princes come around, this beautiful woman, Sarah, we want her, bring her into the, you know, the palace, bring her in. And then what did Abraham get in return for that? Sheep, ox, donkeys, camels, man slaves, and female slaves. So it's highly probable that one of these female slaves is Hagar. So Hagar, being a slave in Egypt, what's her life been like up till now? Pretty crap, eh? Like she's probably, she's either been, well, some ways that she could have ended up in slavery, she's probably been maybe sold by her parents to maybe to pay for food to feed another sibling. Maybe her parents are dead. Maybe she's had to go into slavery to get food and a roof over her head. Maybe she's had to go that way. Whatever the case, she's ended up and she's been sort of like, she's, been, she's part of, she's lumped in this sort of trade for this foreign, beautiful, rich princess that has sort of swept into town. The princes are like, oh, we need her. Let's take her. And then Abraham just gets given all this loot. So she sees herself sort of, you know, on the scale. There's Sarai over here and like there's all these sheep and donkeys and camels and stuff all getting chucked in this side and she's just one of those things that make up the worth of this beautiful foreign rich princess that everyone's so enamored with so anyway god's not down with sarai being in abraham ah sorry pharaoh's house so he brings a series of plagues sends sarai back to abram and sends them you know shoes them out of the country they're gone okay with all they had including hagar so here's Hagar, she's swept along at this place. She ends up being this handmaid to this beautiful, rich foreign princess. And they're going to start a nation. They're moving out to this crazy, weird world. So she's gone from like the pits of a slave girl to being like almost have this sort of weird sort of pseudo mother-daughter relationship with this exotic princess kind of from this other land. Could you imagine? Like, what a journey. You know, it's like, the, it's like a street bum getting a ticket onto the Titanic, although, you know. Let's insert the name of the Titanic with a ship that was actually great and, you know, survived its maiden voyage, you know. But it's, yeah, maybe, yeah, the Great Eastern. Oh, there you go. There's a tie back to a previous sermon. So that's sort of where Sarah sees herself. Think of the, like, the huge, like, arc that her life has taken. So she's probably becomes really enamoured with Sarah, or Sarai as she is at this point in time. Exciting times ahead until we get to verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So a few weeks ago in our mega series, like we looked at Sarai, and we sort of explored maybe you know, some of the pressures that she was under that sort of bring her to this place where she thinks that she can force the issue, she can force fix the problem that Abraham doesn't have an heir, and she gets to this really weird uncomfortable, you know, tragic place. 
Now, I'm, I, I'm assuming Sarah maybe had more access to more than one handmaid other than Hagar. She probably had multiple sort of servants around. So from her human perspective, she probably looks at Hagar and she's like, you know, the equivalent of like, you know, someone who picks up like a sperm donor or an egg donor or something. They look at the genetic makeup of a person, you know, are they intelligent? You know, they've got good bone structure. They're tall. They're, you know, good looking. They're healthy. They don't have any sort of genetic diseases or anything. She probably looks at Hagar and thinks, yeah, she'll do all right. I'm going to use her. Use her. That's what she thinks. So she takes Hagar by the hand, leads her into Abraham's bed so he can get her pregnant. And this child that then Hagar is pregnant with, she, Sarah wants to take this child and Sarah is going to take this child as her own. So, look, if hearing this story and trying to make sense of it just makes you really uncomfortable and makes you cringe, then that's good. All right? Because this is, it, it's a, this is a disgusting part of the story. And it's okay to admit that. Okay? Because many good people, and I, I've talked to you know, non-Christians about this, and they can't get past some of these things. And many good people, for you know, probably really good reasons, they can't get past this mistreatment of Hagar. And they, they consider this like an action that's condoned by God. They consider it. And then they, they take this picture of Hagar and the slavery and all this sort of stuff and they just make these big brush strokes and this is how they paint their picture of God in their mind. They think that everything in the Bible is condoned by God, overlooking the point that the Bible's just made up of uh, stories of lots of imperfect people and God working through it to bring glory to himself because he is the saviour of this broken, busted people. See, some of you... Um, some of you might have heard of the, um, like the Handmaid's Tale, that book, by Margaret Atwood. It was written in the 80s. It's only recently been made into like a um, pretty popular TV show. Um, but lots of people are sort of praising it today as being almost prophetic in the way that they see the country, in particular, well, the United States, heading with the um, sort of perceived lessening of um, females' rights, women's rights over there. And see, Margaret Atwood, when she wrote this book, she was inspired by these handmaids in the Old Testament, so namely Hagar, and um, when, we, when we get to them, Bilhah and Zilpah later on in, in Jacob's time. Um, she was inspired by these handmaids who were used to create babies for their mistresses, but these more powerful women who couldn't conceive their own children. And in her imaginary world, uh, this, in, in The Handmaid's Tale, it's like this totalitarian and fundamentalist Christian, like so I'll this stressing the inverted commas Christian. Um, uh, it's like a patriarchal and misogynistic sort of really dystopian sort of place where the rights of women are shrunk all the way down so that they can't, they're not even allowed to read. So, and man, in this, in this horrible place, that this world that she's created, infertility is increasing and because of that, um, you know, there are these rare women who are still able to bear children and they become the handmaids, okay? And they're used as breeding machines for the wives of the ruling male class who conceive their children through them and really bizarrely with their wives in the room. So, is, now, now why does a story like that, 
Why does a TV show like that gain so much traction in society, in a post-Christian world, or a becoming post-Christian world? Is that the way that objectors sort of see Christian values extrapolated out when they read the Old Testament? Is that what they're seeing? Is that, what they, is that the way they understand it? Because there is this objection that people have of the Bible that the terrible things in here are you know, condoned by God and God allows it to happen and God is all for you know, male pleasure, he's all for using women. and so, That's just not true. Okay, that's not true. Let's, so we need to call this out. Using Hagar to get children from Abram is completely Sarai's idea. Right? Completely Sarai's idea. That's her sinful state where she chose not to believe God's promises that she would be made like a mother of nations, that a nation would come from Abram. Okay? When she chose not to buy into God's promises and believe that, she then goes this way and force fixes the issue. And this is where the problems start. It's come through her. So just because Sarai, she's this uh, like ultimate matriarch of Israel, God's people, doesn't give her a free pass, doesn't make her saint-like. Okay, let's just understand that. So let's read. Um, we'll continue on in verse 4. And he, here we're implicating Abram as well because he doesn't get a free pass here either. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong be done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So here's Abraham's, his involvement with this is just as disgusting. It just screams of like a, like a lustful old man who's willing to just sort of go along with it. Because, oh, sweet, you know. It's disgusting. So let's call it out and let's, let's establish that there. Abraham and Sarah, they have done the wrong thing. Abraham should have used his position here to look after the most vulnerable people in his care. Okay? So let's continue. But um, just before we continue, just understand that here is where we see sort of God starting to move through this mess and start to bringing himself to light and start showing himself out of this mess of, that mankind's created. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So, Hagar's looking down on Sarah. There's a bit of eh, eh, eh going on with these two. And Sarah's like, oh, Abram, do something. And Abram's like, she's yours. Do, what, do to her what you need. Just deal with your own problem. So, Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So now not only has Hagar, Hagar sorry, had her body used, but now she suffers abuse through her mistress's jealousy. Okay? This beautiful, rich, foreign princess that she was all enamored with and ready to leave Egypt with, and you know, throw in for and serve day and night to doing all these sorts of things, she, she now turns on her in like jealous rage in a way. And we, we're not told exactly what the extent of dealt, dealt harshly means, okay? But Hagar flees. A pregnant woman runs into the wilderness. It's, it's got to give you some idea how bad it was, hey? Like, Ruth's not here. I was actually going to, like, ask her, like, Ruth, what would it take you to run, into, run to Thargaminda? 
you know, like take off and just out there? Like what would it take? You women that have been pregnant in the past, you know, like you've got morning sickness going on, you're tired, you're probably not getting good sleep. What would it take for you just to, how bad would your home situation need to be for you to run off, run away? So here's Hagar, she's used, she's pregnant, she's been abused, she's vulnerable and she's scared and she flees into the wilderness. And you imagine when she's out there, she's thinking, what should she do? What should she, what should she do? Like, what's, this is a terrible situation she's in. Should she kill herself and her child? Should she, should she go back to them? Um, like, why did she ever leave Egypt in the first place? Shouldn't she have run away beforehand? Like, what? Why, why does she have to go through this? Like, why, why is this happening to me? You know, you can just imagine, like, why me? Why is this all me? And then, God shows up. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me or who has seen me. So this is where God intervenes into that mess, comes in amongst it, starts clearing away the rubbish. Because, see, this, this, this mess of just um, like fallout and hurt and fear and abuse and like bleeding feet and tears, this like lowly slave girl, she's on the run back to her own home country from Egypt. She's fleeing, like she's got a long way to go. She doesn't know what's going to become of her when she gets there, she's not going to become, she doesn't know what's going to become of her child if she gives birth in the wilderness. You know, like how long's going, you know, all these things that are probably running through her mind. And then she encounters God, and her understanding of God here is that He's a loving God who sees her, hears her, and provides for her. He comes to her, comes to her. And you can almost see in this situation, like all this fretting and this built up, like she's just like, I've got to get out of here. I've got to run. All this like built up tension of, you know, where do I go? And all these worries, 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 they're sort of smoothed out. And they're calmed over by a God who understands her. He knows her. He said, you know, she's pregnant. He, I'm, this is what your child should be called. I know you. I see you. I understand your situation. I've seen the stuff you're going through, I know. And she feels understood. And she's then at, totally at peace with his, his request then to go back, 
Go back to Sarah. Sarai. Go back. She's, she's at peace. She understands that God's got this situation in control and she can go back to that toxic situation. Because we see here, because she has this understanding that God will work through it. So let's continue reading. Verse 15. Here we go. The baby's born. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So remember the last time when we talked about Sarah and we talked about you know, Isaac being born and him meaning laughter? She's like, there's this little boy that's sort of always in her life now, this memorial about what laughter's meant in her life, like either she first laughed at God, but then God gave her back like this mega laughter and a joy of a son when she was like 100 years old. Similar sort of situation for Hagar here because here's Ishmael come along. And what's Ishmael's name mean? God hears. That's exactly right, Parky. God hears. God hears. So this is like this little boy put in her life that's going to grow up and she's going to see him. And every time she sees, hears the word Hagar, every time she sees the word Hagar, she's reaffirming God hears. So that's going to play. Sorry, Ishmael. Sorry. What did I say? Hagar. Ah, Hagar. Ishmael. Every time she says the word Ishmael, God hears. Thank you guys for pulling me up on that. If you're listening along, you know, this is not being edited. Or maybe it will be, Luke. So let's fast forward 13 or 14 years. And Sarah now has given birth to her, the true heir Isaac. And now this son, that's this child that Sarah sort of orchestrated the birth of is not needed anymore. And we'll shoot into Genesis chapter 21. So that second chapter I told you to put your finger in. We'll read from verse 8. <coughs> And the child grew and was weaned, and Abram made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall be no heir with my son Isaac. Well, happy weaning day, Isaac. There's a birthday for you. As a celebration day, happy weaning day. I think that's more for the mum, isn't it? Like, anyway, happy weaning day. I was like, you know, get out come the party poppers. Until, and so it's a great day until, you know, this helicopter parent, Sarah, comes around and says, I don't like what's going on here. Get rid of her. Terrible. But anyway, verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here we go. Here's God's provision. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So here's Abraham's reassurance. It's time for Hagar and Ishmael to go. But God's got it in hand. God's got her safety in hand. The big nations are going to come from these guys. Verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So what's Hagar's perspective of this banishment? 
Like all of a sudden, oh, okay, Ishmael's laughing at Isaac. Next thing, she's getting chucked out. Like, what's her perspective here? Like, she, she ran away first time, okay? That was in her control, but now she's actively being banished. She was made to get pregnant, and then she was mistreated, and now that Sarah has her own child, she's got no use for this one, hers. No use for Ishmael. So they're sort of being disposed of. They're thrown out into the desert with enough sort of um, rations, I suppose, so that they can get far enough away from the camp so that the herdsmen don't stumble upon their corpses or something later on. It's like, just, okay, we don't need you anymore, go. Just get far enough away, just, just go and die somewhere else. We don't need you. We don't want to see you. We don't want your death making us uncomfortable. You just, just go away and just be gone quietly. So she's used, abused, and disposed. And I was wondering, actually, as I read this, I wonder if Hagar is the first... Um, Example that we have in the Bible of like a single mum who's been just thrown out because she's got no practical use anymore. Like she's sort of just gotten rid of. Sorry, there's a fly buzzing around me. No one, no one will take her in. She's got no value. She was like, um, she was young and nubile once, but now's not the case anymore and she's just being disposed of, pushed out onto the rubbish heap and just go away quietly. We don't want you making people uncomfortable. Go away. It's on a trajectory for a really terrible ending here. And this is, this is an ending that is really common in this world. Hey, so common. Young, beautiful women are sort of used and chewed up and then spat out when they're old and perceived to be unattractive and whatever. It's just common in this world where human life has no value. This, this image of God that we get back to, that we see in like the start of the Bible, this image of God, this inerit, inherent sort of value that every human life has, when that is ignored and when that's like pushed down and rejected, then this is where we go. This is where we get to. This is the sad place we get to where people are just disposed of. Let's read verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of, the bow, of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Um, Camille and I were talking about this, and Camille probably, she thinks this is probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Like, if you're a mum and you want, like, understand this, like, even a dad, like, this is, this is tragic. You're in, a, you're in a desert. You have no, you, you can't provide for your child anymore, okay? You're at, you're at your end. There is nothing more that you can give them to stop them dying. They're fading. You... Lay them down. She, she lays him down under this bush. She doesn't want to abandon him. She just backs off. She doesn't want to abandon him in the wilderness, but she doesn't want to watch him die either. It's really sad. Hey, how, how, do, you, how do you get to that? Like, what, what does it feel like to be in that point? Like, put yourselves in Hagar's sandals for a bit. And you know, she's doing that. She's probably weak and had it herself. She can't give any more to him. She has no water. She has no food. She's run out. Death's coming. 
she just lays him down. Ishmael. Oh, Ishmael. What's Ishmael's name again? What's it mean again? God hears. She lays him down under the bush. She says, Ishmael. Oh, Ishmael. God hears. Every time she says Ishmael, she's reiterating that truth. God hears. God hears. God hears. And then when she's just at her end, she just sits down herself and there's that just distraught mother's heart cry of just desperation and it's probably like an eruption of just like emotional snot and tears. And you know that weird phlegmy stuff that gets in your mouth when you like just cry out in desperation. And the boy in his weakened whimpers as, as he's fading away. This is, this is death's door. This is like the pits of life. Like the end is almost here. God hears. God hears. And this loving, compassionate provider, God, he sees them, he hears, he comes. He's coming, he's intervening into this mess, this, this terrible place of just death and just winding down. God hears, he comes at the most desperate time. Verse 17, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angels of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Lift up, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, and I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy to drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So here God opens Hagar's eyes to the source of life. All right? She couldn't see it. She was dying. She couldn't see where the life was coming from. She couldn't see the way out. God opens her eyes to the way, this well of life, this water that can keep her going, that can prop her up. She is saved when she gets up and she gets that water that God has provided for her. She's saved by the God who sees and hears and provides. Now, let's blow through the sands of time. Like, let's just let the timeline blow through. You know, ages and ages fly by. 2,000 years later, okay? When this same God, this seeing, hearing, providing God, he shows up in human form on this earth. All right? And all the sort of things from this, this God of the Old Testament that he does and how he says things, we kind of don't get it. Do we? we can't, it's kind of hard for us to understand until we see Jesus here. Jesus, God, he comes down and he gives us this practical demonstration of what it looks like, what this God looks like if he was a person. And we see it. And this really kind of crazy, almost reenactment, it's not exact, but it's very similar. Reenactment goes down with Jesus and a woman at a well. She's, she is a despised woman from a despised community. Like the bunch of the lowest rungs on the ladder, she's probably the, the bottom rung of those rungs. Okay, she is, she's the outcast of society. 
She's a woman, she's blown through five husbands, everyone looks down on her, she is despised and she's weak and she's in need of water. And Jesus here explains to her about the new life that he is. He provides her the new life. And then she goes away from that place, not having drunk like H2O water, but having the life that Jesus has given her running through her soul. And then she goes out and she tells other people about Jesus. And then a kind of like nation comes from her also, like her surrounding community. They all believe this Jesus. And, And life comes from them. So a community, like a nation, sort of rises up out of her, just as similar to, as it did with Hagar through Ishmael. So here's Jesus bringing this water of life for everyone, anyone. It doesn't matter whether you're like in the pits of society or whether you're one of these matriarchs and patriarchs, high flyer, you know, whoever's, royal, royalty, royality, royalty. Okay? It doesn't matter. Jesus came for you, all. Jesus died for all. Jesus wants to give this living water to all. So if you, if you sort of bind on this story, like just don't get stuck in the surface level thinking that you know, God approves of everything that's happened in the Bible. Don't get stuck thinking about that. But look at these people and look through these people and understand the perfect version of those people, which is this God-man Jesus. Jesus, this, he, he's the person that you should be looking past these fallible humans to, to see through this book. Right? This, is who, this is who we've got to see, God Almighty, Jesus. So if you don't know this Jesus, just put your trust in him today. You know, cry out for that living water. If you, if you want to know more about it, just come and ask one of us, you know, any of us, a, Christ, a good Christian friend, ask how do I drink this water that Jesus is talking about? How do I put Jesus as king over my life? And then when you do, you become part of this amazing place called the church. A bunch of broken, busted people tied together through God's Holy Spirit. We all make up for our weaknesses. We've got plenty of them. Now, church, I'm going to speak to you. Okay, if you're part of this church business, if you're part of Willowburn, you are representatives of King Jesus here on earth. You're wanting to see his kingdom come into this pits of a world, this black, dark world. I want you to just think about what I'm saying here. I don't want you to just swallow it whole. I want you to sit with this idea and just chew on it for a little bit and take it all in properly, all right? What is your attitude towards the most vulnerable people in society? Now, I'm not talking about your attitude that you like to think you have or the attitude that you like to talk about all the time and all the great things that would be great to do. I'm talking about your attitude that is an example given to you by what your hands do and where your feet go and what you say. So, like, you know, what you say to these people around. Like, what is your real, true attitude towards the most vulnerable people in society? Like, is there, like, consider your hearts, Is there Abraham and Sarah issues in you? Where you're part of God's family, but you're treating the the less fortunate and the vulnerable around you like rubbish. Where you're standing on them and you're using them for your own wants and desires. 
if you, if you hold these people sort of at arm's length for fear of having any of your freedoms or your niceties impinged on? Is that in your heart? Is that how you act and how you behave? Is that your attitude? Like, where is your, where is your voice and support for, you know, the teenage pregnant, the pregnant teenager, teenage mums? And where is your voice and support for, you know, the babies that are about to be aborted? And where's your voice and support for the homeless and sweatshop kids and sex slaves and porn stars? All right, homeless people, refugees, boat people, people looking to get away from their terrible situation, the most vulnerable people. Where is your, like, what's your attitude towards them? I really hope, I pray that you have the attitude of Jesus or you're changed to have the attitude of Jesus where you don't care about yourself, where you reach out past the walls of discrimination and past any sort of inconveniences and you reach out to those people. The most vulnerable, the used, the abused people in society. And you reach out to them in their desperate time of need. See, the church has both the duty and the privilege to speak on and stand in the place of those who cannot speak and stand for themselves, right? Because that is exactly what God has done for us through Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to say it again, but I'm going to target it, okay? You, you, Willow Burn. okay? You have the duty and the privilege to speak for and stand for the sake of those who can't speak and stand for themselves. Because that is exactly what God has done for us through Jesus. Yeah? Let's pray and lead into communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming for us. When we were desperate and we were on death's door, when we were lowly, we were broken, busted, when you came and save us, Lord. Thank you. Convict us, Lord, to follow your example in bringing your message of life to the most vulnerable, providing them the everyday water, food, shelter, but then providing the everlasting, the life, the water, life-giving water that comes from you, Lord. Father, as we come to communion now, we thank you for your sacrifice that enabled this. Break our hearts for what you've done for us, the way that you have come to us at our weakest moment and most vulnerable, no matter who we are, no matter how vulnerable we are, no matter how high and proud we might be, but we're all broken at that same level, Lord. Break us now as we consider that. We thank you for your sacrifice, Lord, your body broken, your blood spilled out to save us. Amen. So as we um, so come to communion, you know, our, 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 um, as it is our custom, you know, with the two lines, Come and, and serve each other. 
And we were talking about this at leaders meeting just recently, like I think it was Tim's idea, and it's a great idea, like don't just take a little sparrow's piece from the bread, like take a big chunk. And as you're chewing it, think about, you know, think about the hard call that we have as Christians in this world because of the hard, you know, because of the measures that Jesus went to for us. So come up and take it and contemplate that as you, as you chew on your big piece and, um, and we'll close out.